Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. As I mentioned, today's survey question at Smirconish.com, it mimics the work of my next guest. I'm asking, do you have more fear than hope about America? Dr. Michael Mazar is a senior political scientist for the RAND Corporation. While polls demonstrate a feeling that the country is ill-fated, Dr. Mazar breaks down issues that could contribute to a downfall in national success in his new work, which is titled The Societal Foundations of National Competitiveness. It's linked in all of my social media, and it's posted directly at Smirconish.com. Dr. Mazar, thank you so much for being here. Talk to me about this year-long study that you undertook. What were you seeking to learn? Yeah, basically, I mean, we hear a lot of discussion from uh, leaders, politicians, analysts about, um, from a national security perspective, how we've got to restore the home front and uh, invest in domestic power, but people don't typically define what that means. How do you know when a country is reflecting societal characteristics that are going to make it dynamic and strong? So that's what we set out to do, is looking at a lot of historical evidence, case studies, a lot of different literatures and economics and other fields to try to identify a few of the major characteristics um, that are associated with success and failure and then do kind of an interim application to the United States to see how we're doing. Give me the takeaway and then we'll talk about some of the analysis. What is it? Sum it up for us. So the takeaway is I I would say two things um, and not to focus entirely on where the United States is. Uh, The first takeaway is there are a set of identifiable characteristics that are reasonably consistent across um, even going back to pre-modern periods, that uh, societies, empires, nations that have done well tend to reflect these things. So that's useful for us to sort of have a sense of, uh, an ongoing sense of where the country is. The other takeaway is that while the United States has traditionally, our open, dynamic, grassroots, free society has reflected probably the best recipe for success of those characteristics in history, Uh, There are a number of those areas in which the trend lines uh, are very troubling, and they suggest that there's decent evidence that the United States is reflecting a pattern of a country that uh, has hit its competitive peak and may be on the far side of that unless we take action to restore that strength. Akin to what, if any, historical model? Um, so this is not, you know, I would say some of the historical uh, kind of models and, and, and patterns we looked at um, are things like when economists try to explain how Europe um, leapt ahead of the rest of the world after 1500 and what's called the Great Divergence, general uh, economic um, uh, theories of development, what makes countries develop faster than others. So there's a lot of specific kind of models and evidence we looked at, but there there isn't one... I mean, maybe the closest analog is Paul Kennedy's old book, The Rise and Decline of Great Powers, but that was really focused on a more narrow issue, sort of financial uh, solvency and overreach. This looks at a a broader set of factors um, that hasn't been done quite in this way before. You identify seven leading societal characteristics that are associated with national competitive successes. Give me an example of, of one or two that you rely upon. Yeah, so I'll give you two examples, uh, one more abstract than the other. Uh, the first one and more abstract is um, national ambition and willpower. When we put that first on the list. We mean it both internationally, countries that are dynamic and successful 
have a sense of exceptionalism. They have a sense that they are destined to lead in the international community. It can be in a lot of ways, but they have this essential willpower to act and to express their power internationally. But it also has a domestic component where there's a sort of habit of competitive ambition in the society. And that all wraps together into just sort of a vibrant and dynamic society that wants to make its mark. Now, you can imagine that can go wrong very easily, but we did not find uh, countries that reached a real competitive peak without that. The other thing I'll mention is uh, a little more standard and measurable, and that is uh, shared opportunity. So basically, societies that manage to tap the widest range of talents uh, in the society not discriminating against people for any particular reason, not preventing people from different groups or genders or whatever from getting into certain fields, science, technology, medicine, but really providing the, the best opportunity to the largest number of people. That is a tremendous competitive advantage. So those are the kinds of societal characteristics that we're looking at. This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124 and on the SXM app. Are our problems here generational? I ask that because you say there's evidence that we have declining national ambition and that younger Americans increasingly do not believe that the nation is exceptional or that the country is on the right track toward greatness. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty, as you know, as I'm sure you've seen, that's a pretty consistent finding of Mm -hmm. a lot of recent surveys. And I don't know, you know, I would say it's a symptom more than it's, uh, obviously, there's a lot of work on changing values in generations, and but I don't know that that really is associated with some of the challenges in these areas. Um, just as an example, so one of our characteristics is a learning and adapting mindset in society, and the major threat we identify is the rise of misinformation, disinformation, what other Rand work has called truth decay. So that's a big trend in society. That's not it, It's not really associated with generations. It's not like younger people are rooting for misinformation. So I think that the loss of faith is more a recognition of trends they see rather than something inherent to different generational values. Are you concerned about the increase in, I should say, I I guess the decrease in um, the way in which we regard institutions, the faith that we have, the trust, that's the word that I was looking for, that we have in institutions? Very much so. I mean, and, and just yesterday or the day before, and you may have been talking about this, Gallup released their latest institutional uh, poll, which has some of the lowest numbers they've ever recorded for some major institutions, governmental institutions and others. Um, there's really only a couple of institutions in society that have greater than 50% faith. Now, one thing is when you look a little more, you know, you dig into that a little bit, it's not like these numbers were at 80% three years ago. They've been sort right. of declining for a while. But uh, it is absolutely a hallmark of societies that uh, begin to ossify, begin to decay, lose their economic vibrancy, lose their social coherence, that people lose the sense that there are fair and honest mediating institutions in society that are helping to organize and run the society in a fair and effective way. There's absolutely no question that that's one of the most dangerous trends that we see in public opinion today. When you talk then about those seven factors, those seven criteria that you've looked at, national ambition and will, unified national identity, shared opportunity, et cetera, et cetera, how do we compare to other present-day nations? 
So that's a really good question, and it's uh, uh, we, we still compare by a lot of measures not that badly. I mean, for example, if you look at some measures of shared opportunity, uh, like social mobility measures, partly because the United States is living on sort of the path dependence of um, some success, you know, the, the, the very dynamic model that we had, had put into place, uh, certainly by 50s, 60s, 70s, um, international measures of social mobility in the United States, um, some of those have declined, but others still compare reasonably well um, in sort of total educational achievement. Um, inequality is rising everywhere. It's not just in the United States, and it's rising more quickly in China, for example. So by some of the measurable indicators, um, the, the United States is never going to be as high on the list as like Singapore or Denmark, some very small, more homogenous countries that in some of these measures are going to have a natural advantage. But the, the measurable indicators, I think, have not yet begun to reflect the underlying problems uh, in some of these areas. So we still compare uh, in a lot of international surveys reasonably well, um, but the question is whether that really starts to, to ebb in coming years. And I think some of the underlying evidence suggests that it's going to. Dr. Michael Mazar is a senior political scientist for the RAND Corporation. We're talking about the societal foundations of national competitiveness. It's in all my social media right now, and there's a link to it at smirconish.com. Two other questions, if I might, Dr. Mazur, and thank you for being so gracious with your time. Is this all self-actualizing? By that, I mean that you speak of the negative feedback loop that kicks in. Is it just a perception that we have that things are going poorly? Consequently, things do go poorly. Um, there, there is a piece to that. Um, I, I'll say no in general because some of these things are independent of perception. Um, it's not just perception of institutions, but there's also objective measures of um, wh- whether the state institutions can solve major social problems, and, and there's a decline in those objective measures. There is a problem with the perception, though, and this is something that actually I wrote about years ago and, and called it the pessimism syndrome, and you know this very well. The, the proportion of major news stories that are show the negative side of um, news is very high, and uh, there seems little question that that drives public perception that when you ask people what's the state of the economy, what's the state of crime, the answers you get are typically far worse than the reality. So one of the implications of the way that our media tends to work is that people think things are even worse than they actually are. And that absolutely contributes to the kind of negative feedback that you mentioned. And finally, sum up, for the benefit of someone who just tuned in, hey, there was this bright individual from Rand on Smirconish's show. He just concluded a year-long study. He most wanted us to know what? That amid all of our fragmentation and division, the thing we should be focusing on is what are the things we have to do to renew uh, American dynamism and competitive position. And there we've tried to start a discussion around the issue of identifying what those factors are and beginning to get a hint of what we need to do to renew the American condition. This is not at all a, a suggestion that all is lost or that we can't reverse these trends. So the most important takeaway is um, there is a way to understand how we can renew uh, some of these 
um, aspects of national competitiveness. And if we focus on that in a bipartisan way, we can definitely get there. Any example come to mind? Anything tangible that you can say, here's an example of how we can reverse the trends? So absolutely. I'll just mention one, which is in the area of shared opportunity. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of, and you've probably looked into these things, of so say shared access to capital and investment capital for entrepreneurs from different kinds of backgrounds. Um, radical changes in the higher education model that get away from the cost barriers. Just today, the Washington Post had a story that the vast majority of economics professors come from elite backgrounds. There's relatively straightforward ways to uh, take the next step in sharing opportunity in the country that would be one of a hundred things we could do to kind of um, revitalize national dynamism as as measured in these kind of historical terms. Dr. Mazur, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great to be with you. Michael Mazur is a senior political scientist for the RAND Corporation, previously worked at the U.S. Naval War College, holds a Ph.D. in public policy from the University of Maryland. All right, so we have fleshed out in additional ways now today's survey question. Do you have more fear than hope about America? This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM. Listen to Michael live weekdays on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and on the SXM app. John, you're in Colorado. Greetings. What did you most want to say? Hi, Michael. Uh, Hi. I wanted to say that I, I share the current pessimism with everybody, and I see it in my kids. And uh, I, like the, the nature of uh, our society today is, is pessimistic and, and very argumentative right now, but I, I, I am very optimistic about America's resilience and our ability to get back to a, to a more trusting uh, and, and believing in America condition. Uh, in the in the uh, you know short run in, in terms of years, um, I feel what's lacking is uh, is leadership. Uh, there's a lot of politicians, and I was very hopeful for Biden that he would truly do what he said he would do and represent you know people of both parties. But he's he's kind of taken attack of the opposite of Trump, where he's he's attacking government institutions, namely the Supreme Court right now, and and defaming. You know, people who who oppose his agenda personally, and um, um, you know, I, I was disappointed in, in his ability to bring it together for both both sets of constituents. But uh, I think there's a leader out there who's going to do it. It's hard for me to see how things take a turn for the better for President Biden with the midterms looming and the considerations. I won't repeat the list of of what they are to voters, but. It all skews with the exception of abortion, and maybe that's a major exception in favor of the Republicans, who seem destined to take the the House by not a little, but by a lot, and probably, although less clear, the Senate as well. How is the president able to get anything done against that that backdrop? I just, I don't see it. Toby, you get to go next because it says you are disappointed or frustrated, one or both, in something that I said, so I'd love to know what it is. Well, not so much what you said specifically, but I think the general tenor of the discussion seems to miss the mark, I think, a lot. Because what folks, and maybe in the older generations, it's a little bit more acceptable, but what's really happening here is the parties are shifting. The working people are going red. And yeah. the Democrats are almost totally captured by corporate and technocratic interests. Um, that was true in the last election. Biden got all the hedge fund and big corporate money. 
And there's a huge gulf on the Republican side between their leadership and their voters. You know, people are like, well, I suppose we're supposed to be for corporations, but I'm not sure they're, they have my best uh, interests at heart. And then on the Democratic side, people are like, well, you know, I thought you were for the working person, but I can't fill up my tank. Um, and uh, I can't uh, leave my car door unlocked in my neighborhood. So I think what you're seeing is a shift, a big, big political shift in the party parties. Um, and until that shakes out, there's going to be a lot of... Uh, yeah, I, I, would use, I would use the word realignment, and I'm not sure where it all ends. I, I don't know. I, are, the, are the trends that I'm looking at of Hispanics moving to the right and moving uh, further red, are, exactly. are they going to last? I mean, 20 years ago, I was... I had a standard part of speeches that I would deliver both on air and to private groups around the country where I would put up demographic information and show that whites would be majority minority by 2050. And if the trend lines continued, yada, 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 Hispanics are going to be the the lifeblood of the Democratic Party. There's no way Republicans will be able to regain their footing. And yet, look where we are. Look at that election that just took place in Texas. So and, yeah, and the point I mean, that you make the point yeah. the point that you make about if I could just say about about blue collar voters now aligning white blue collar voters with the Republican Party in a way that back in the eighties would never have been the case, I think that also speaks to the failures uh or the loss of prominence of unions. Um but those are long lasting trends as well that are gonna shake things up. Yeah, I mean, I think even in the union leadership, right? Like you, you have in the entire membership of a of a local is eighty five percent Republican, but the leaders endorse the local Democrat. So it's it's you've got this giant gulf between the actual people and the people running things. And I think until that shakes out, it's, you're going to have this constant confusion. Thank you, Toby. The Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.